Welcome this morning. It's good to see you guys. Really good. Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn in in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Um, And as you're getting there, I just want to welcome you guys to this space and welcome you online. If you're online today, just comment and tell us that you're, you're tuning in. If you're new to this space, we've specifically prayed for you. We prayed that our time gathering in this space would be a blessing, that all of us would be able to hear and learn from God's Word and that we would be um, moved by His Holy Spirit. We pray that His Holy Spirit would work in every one of our gatherings because everything that we do here would be in vain if not for God intervening. If He doesn't show up, everything that we do from the songs that we sing um, to words that we speak would be in vain. And so our invitation to you is to come and gather around His table And our invitation to God is to say, please speak to us today. Speak to us from your word. If you're new, we'd love for you to fill out a card in the seat back in front of you. You can drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors and we'll contact you in a respectful way. Now, we've been in Jonah for a couple weeks and I wanna give you a quick recap of where we've been. Um, Jonah shows up this week just grateful to be alive, I can imagine, grateful to be here. And some of you guys, maybe you're feeling like you just came through the doors surviving the week behind you. And your, your body is kind of catching, or your mind is catching up with your body that you just got into this space. Wherever you're coming from, um, one of the things that we, we want to see today is that God would be exalted. Sometimes he uses unlikely vessels, unlikely messages, unlikely audience in order to display his mercy and kindness to us. And Jonah is a real story of God showing off who he is and what he's like and how he works in the world. He's heard from God the first time in chapter one. He's rebelled from God's invitation to join him in mission and to deliver his message to this town, Nineveh. He's rebellious. And Jonah, generally people know the story up until this point, okay? People know what it means to be a Jonah. It means that you've run away from God or you're resisting his call or command on your life, but nobody is real familiar what happens after this point. And so what happened with Jonah? Jonah runs the opposite direction. God stops him with a storm. Then he calms the storm and he delivers him through a great fish. And at this point in his life, Jonah has been spit out and he's on dry land. And so let's pray before we start in chapter three. And I wanna invite you not just to listen to me pray, but to pray along with me that God would speak to us from his word. Father, I pray that these words would come to life for us today. In the meager attempts to deliver what you would have for us, I pray that you would bless it and that you would speak through me as a vessel, that your words would come to life, that you would call people to faith and to repentance, that we would see your deliverance not only of Jonah, but of this group of people that are rebellious, and we would see ourselves in this story and ultimately see you as not just the great narrator, but the one who's central to all of it. I pray that you'd show off your power and might today in calling people to faith and repentance and that you would do what only you can do, that you'd bring words to light and that you'd bring our hearts and lives to you and to your throne again. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few things that we're going to observe in this passage as I walk through first, the recommissioning of Jonah, how he receives a new uh, mission from God is the same as the first one. The second thing we're going to see is Nineveh's repentance. And then lastly, we're going to look at what it means that our God is a merciful God. So if you would follow along with me, starting in verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, 
that great city and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So the first thing we're going to see is Jonah's recommissioning. Now we're going to pause and walk through this passage a little different, and we'll come back to the text in just a moment. We're going to see his call, the context of where he's being called, and the content of his message. First is called, the word of God comes to Jonah. I'm not sure if he's expecting at this point that he would be recommissioned to God's work, but I can imagine him being spit out of the fish and thinking, what now? What's next? And God's word comes to him a second time. The one thing I want you to notice about God's word is that it's coming to him. It's God's word that's in pursuit here. It's in pursuit of this rebellious prophet and the movement that happens in verse one didn't happen because Jonah was seeking God at this point. He's crying out to him from the belly of the fish, but at this point, God is bringing his words to him. God is taking initiative as he does in each person's life that comes to repentance. Somewhere in the shadow of his rebellion, comes repentance, God comes to him again with this word and recommissioning. And there's a way in which the gospel of God is coming to those, no matter how far you are from Christ or how close you are to this point of repentance, God's word comes to us. And at this moment of repentance, he's able to receive God's word. Many of you have come to some moment in your life that's very similar to this, where you saw and thought that maybe life was over. He's looking back in in chapter two, it looked like his life had come to a point of death. The darkness had closed in on him and maybe you've come to a point where you thought, maybe my life is over. This is going to be the end of me. You thought you were sure that you were finished. And there's always some purpose that God has beyond those moments when we think this is the end. The purpose lies beyond the grave for Jonah and there's consequences and the consequences of sin are not over in his life, uh, but he's being invited to be part of God's mission again. A second time he speaks to him, a second chance, another opportunity for God to be part of God's purpose in his life. And so I wonder how many of you have ever been to those kind of places where you thought, maybe this is it. Nothing else that God could do with my life. Maybe feeling a loss of purpose and insight. And in that moment of darkness, God's word comes to Jonah and recommissions him. So Jonah embraces this recommissioning. Look at verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. A couple observations before we move on. First, he sees this place that God's calling him to and he responds with obedience the second time. He heads to Nineveh, and it calls it this great city. This is his missional context. Some people debate on if this is a capital city at this point. Either way, it was a great city. It's huge. Lots of people, lots of evil, lots of violence. And so I want us to pay attention really quickly to what is happening in this city. God describes it in verse 1 like this. It's going to be on the screen in chapter 1, verse 2. Sorry. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the few reasons that God is inviting him to this place. First, that it's a great city, that it's an evil city. And then later in chapter four, we see that it's an ignorant city. They don't know their right hand from their left. First, it's a great city. The size of the city, there's 120,000 people. Three days journey to travel around it. It's regional epicenter for Assyria. There's an economic impact for what God would do in this city. And God sees it. He's not blind to it. And he also notices there's a lot of cattle in that city. Not really sure why that's an important part of the story, but a couple times God brings it up. He's like, there's a lot of cattle there too. There's people and there's animals. They don't know their right hand from their left. It's a similar size to Jackson. 
A little bit smaller, but at that point, that would have been a huge city. They didn't know their right hand from their left. They were in ignorance and neglect for the fact that God saw them. It was extensive, three days journey in breadth. This would have been huge. In Nahum chapter two, it describes it as this rich city. They had silver, gold. There's no end to the treasure and precious things that would pour out of this place. It's a commercial city of commerce. There's people coming in and out to trade there and there's a ton of people. And so God pays attention to the great size of it and two times he tells him, this is a great city. Not that it's good, but it's huge. There's impact There's great potential for the city. Next thing I want you to see is that it was a sinful city. Their evil had come up before God, and so he was seeing everything that's happening in this city of violence. Most people think about Sin City as as Las Vegas. That whatever happens in Vegas, what? It stays in Vegas. But here's the thing about God. There's absolutely nothing that's hidden from his sight. He sees everything. And the deeds of this city are not hidden from him. He sees that they're evil. He sees how they're behaving. And last, he sees that they're ignorant. They don't know their right hand from their left in chapter four, and he sees them with compassion. How could they not know what's missing from their mindset? What's missing? It's God. It's a great city. It has a great need. And Nineveh sounds so far away from us, right? It just seems like a really far off city, like this distant, historic place, ancient city. It's maybe only imaginary, but this is a real place with real people, and God's heart was moved to compassion for them. So I just want to pause for a moment because we think of that city being so far away, and I want us to consider our own city, Jackson. Now, some of you may have driven in from some other place, or maybe you're just visiting with a guest for a second, but I just want us to pause and think about the city that God has called every person in this room, at least to be in for today, okay? And think about the the ways in which God described Nineveh And then our own city, according to the Clarion Ledger, as of a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, 79 people had been murdered in the city of Jackson just in this year. It's now on pace to reach 150 murders by the end of this year and surpass last year's record of 130 homicides. Just let that sink in for a moment. This that we live in and that we're surrounding is a great city. And with great cities, there's great needs because people live there. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God himself. And outside of that, we're left to our own devices. A few weeks ago, the Clarion Ledger asked the the Hines County Sheriff, what is causing all of these homicides? What's causing the murder? And he says this, uh, he said this, it's gonna be on the screen. It appears to me that the value of human life has been diminished in the eyes of too many people for whatever reason. So I want to ask a question just for a moment before we move forward. How does a city get to that point? How does it get to a point where human lives just begin to diminish in value? How does it get there? It seems to me that the way that we get on that path of diminishing life and where not just the evil of a city of our own lives could get to this point where we don't know our right from our left is that we dismiss the presence of God. In so many ways, the way that we get there is, be, is that we forget God, that he's the creator of life. He's the one who gives life value, that he's willing to suffer and die for humans 
for the price of redemption is very great and it's a price that he's willing to pay and he's inviting us to see that as the great narrative over humanity and over creation. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was an outspoken critic of communism and he helped raise global awareness of political repressions in the Soviet Union. And in 1970, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for literature. And, and the reason he won it is because he was seeking to expose and challenge all the atrocities of what had happened in the Soviet Union and Russia. And in his acceptance speech a few years later, he says this, and it's going to be on the screen. He spent his life studying how could these things happen? And he said, over a half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution in the process. I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own towards the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat. Men have forgotten God. And that's why all this has happened. So before we get to some solution, Jonah's commissioning this second time was an invitation to go to a people who were evil before God. They had forgotten. Their, they don't know their right hand from their left. They're ignorant and negligent of God himself. That's how it gets to this conclusion. There's a general forgetfulness of our creator. And that's how we get into the situation that we're in. That's how a city gets to the point where, where maybe over 100 people could die needlessly this year. And before we get too high and mighty or too concerned with how needy our city is, the reality is there's so many ways in which our own minds, in our own homes and families, careers, in our own schedules that we can be ignorant, forgetful, and act as if there is no witness to our lives. So before we look at the city and say, oh, it's just, it's really tough, the first place that God begins a work of revival is in individuals who turn their attention towards him. So it's not just our city that's forgetful of God. We can be just as forgetful. Those who believe might also assume things that cannot be assumed. We can't just presume that God's mercy hangs over all of creation. It's definitely offered through Jesus Christ. But the way that this revival breaks out in the city of Nineveh is that they first hear about a coming judgment of God. And so before I move on to his message in this recommissioning, I just want you to see and pause that it's, it's not just about how our culture or society could be forgetful of God. It's how we as individuals might wake up every day and act as if there is no God. Those who would profess his existence, who would profess his nearness, might avoid his nearness with the ways that we live. It's not just outside of us, it's us. So as we consider where God was and how he's commissioning Jonah to go to this group of people, there's ways in which we play the role of Jonah over and over and over again. We need to be invited into his purpose and we need to see that there's ways that we're forgetful of the God who sees us. 
There's very little distinction between Jonah and the Ninevites, right? Like both of them are rebellious. The the religious guy who's running from God and the people that have no idea their right hand from their left, both of them are in grave need of God's mercy. Both parties are out of alignment with the part that they might play in creation. Both of them forgetful of the impact of every decision. And so if we're forgetful today, first invitation towards God's grace and mercy is to remember that he exists. And not just to remember it in this setting, but to act in such a way as if our God exists. He sees us. There's nothing hidden from him. What happens in wherever you're at doesn't just stay in wherever you're at. He's a witness to all of our lives. And here's the really good news, okay? That he doesn't doesn't miss a beat. God's not missing anything. And he does stand in his holy righteousness over this city. But his heart for them is compassion. So part of Jonah's recommissioning to this city is because God pities them. He sees that they don't know their right hand from their left. And he has compassion on them. He has pity in the midst of his judgments about what they're doing and the evil rising up to them. He sees them for where they're at. And he sees there's a potential for them. So God's going to have to do something extraordinary in order to rescue this group of people. So he sends, you know, vomit-covered Jonah to the city. I'm not sure if he's still smelly. But he begins, and he gives him this message. He's like, I want you to go, and I'll give you a a message that I give you. So I don't know at what point Jonah figures out what he's going to say, but he starts walking towards the city, and he shows up in verse 4. Look at this. Jonah began to go into the city, go in a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God had told him, go and give the message that I'm going to give you. Obviously, he's reluctant the first time. The second time, he wakes up and he brings basically a warning. You guys are doomed. 40 days. It's, it's like five words in Hebrew. Really, really short message. Maybe this is just a summary of what he kind of pulled off for them. Either way, he brings this message that, hey, time's up, guys. Time's up. 40 days and you guys are done. Basically, a warning. And here's what I want you to see about Jonah's message and the content of his message. First, that it came from God. Jonah didn't want to go. He did not even want to bring the message of warning to them. He had no desire for them to repent, which you're going to find out in in chapter 4. So this message had to have come from God. The other reason I know that, not just because he's reluctant in chapter 4, it's because they actually did something with the message. The only way that you can see God's... Look, the only uh, uh, way that people come to faith and repentance through the foolishness of preaching is that God and his Holy Spirit somehow empowers the words of men. These syllables and sounds are not powerful because of me speaking them. That's not what makes God's message and word powerful. It's because he empowered by the Holy Spirit for something to be transformed in this group of people. They hear the words. It comes from God. Now listen, the only way to say difficult things to people is for the message to come to God, from God. So many times, we, and the only way for us to receive difficult words from people is for the message to come from God. So many times, we prefer a message that's so much gentler on the ears, right? We, just lo- we love to hear a good, a, a good word that's encouraging and empowering and making pe- people feel good about themselves. And I... I think that this message, you know what? Jonah could have walked in there and said something different. But God wanted him to say this warning and this message to them. And he brings out this. 40 days and it's over for you guys. He didn't tickle their ears. He didn't pretend that that they were like not doomed. 
Listen, what I want you to know is that God doesn't need your defense. He needs no apology for who he is. He is who he is. He's powerful, majestic, righteous, holy. He's all of those things. And we don't have to apologize for him. He can stand on his own. He's in the heaven and does as he pleases. So I'm just going to leave that right there. There's, there's very little hope in Jonah's summary, okay? Very little hope for them. In fact, he didn't want there to be hope. His message is short. And it's followed by the greatest miracle in Jonah. What do you guys think the best miracle in the, in the book of Jonah is? Maybe some of you are thinking, you know, that storm's pretty powerful. When it stopped, as soon as he hit the waters, that's pretty powerful, right? That's an amazing miracle. The fact that God can tell a fish where to go, who to eat, and who to spit out, that's pretty amazing. But the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is what happens in response to this message. The greatest miracle is that the people hear this really awful, condemning message, and they're like, okay, all right. And they respond. The greatest miracle of all is what followed in verse 5. Look at it. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Look, every person in this room has, that has a story of redemption, this is how it started. At some point, you heard his word and you said, I believe that. I believe that. That's true. It's not just true externally. That's true for me. And they responded. They didn't just believe. They respond. How did they respond? They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. Look, it's not even just like the poor people that are responding. The king who's sitting on his throne is going, we got to do something about this. And he issues a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Next thing I want you to look at in this passage is Nineveh's repentance. Look, it's obvious that it's not because of the great preacher. It's not because of him. It's not because he gave them a compelling message. He spoke a really harsh message to them and the glory and the power goes to the Lord because they respond. And how did they respond? First, they believed. They heard the word of God and they believed it. This is how revival begins, both in the life of an individual and for a culture and society. It begins with people hearing God's word and believing it. They respond not just with belief, but it comes in power. Their, their actions are changed. They turn away from evil. They repent. The proclamation can result in a lot of things. Some people reject the message of the gospel. In fact, about 100 years later, Jeremiah comes and preaches a word of judgment to God's people, and they lock him up. And they're like, we're not going to have it. This is not a good word. We don't like it. But Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh, and they're like, okay. It comes with power. Men know their need, and they respond with repentance. Now, every week, every week that I stand up here and bring God's word, I know for sure this, that if anything is transformative, if anything has power, it is not because of my eloquence. It's not because of any 
uh, uh, intelligence that I have, any training that I have, it's because of God's Spirit working through His Word. And they're awakened in the same way. They move from indifference to awakening. They move from numbness and ignorance to seeing things as they are. They believe God's Word, and everyone from top to bottom urgently responds. The belief led to action. Here's the other thing I want you to see about true repentance. The nature of it isn't just intellectual assent. It's not just saying, I believe those things to be true, and then everything kind of moving on course to be the same. They changed. In fact, they called them three things. A fast, put on sackcloth, they sat in ashes. And I want you to imagine a whole decree, a mandate that everyone, including the cattle, here they are again, stop eating. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have been around a farm, um, but right before animals eat, they get super noisy. So I just want you to imagine for, the, for a moment the volume of this town and all their people and all their cattle and the grumpiness of everyone not eating. The sound rising up of thousands of hungry animals. They responded and it cost them something. Listen, I want to go through these three things really quickly just to understand because some people are like, hey, what's, what's the deal? Like, why do we fast or why would we even make ourselves uncomfortable in any way? Because we really love comfort, am I right? It's a great thing to live in America. We love air conditioning. We love all these things, okay? And it is great. It is God's grace. We receive them all. But I want, I want you to just see what they're doing in response and what it means that they call the fast, a fast is a way of saying my appetite for the things of God is stronger than my belly. It's saying I want to withhold, I want to keep my appetites in check with where they should be. God, my appetite for you is stronger than my stomach. That's one of the reasons that we might call a fast. It's a way of us saying, hey, there's some things that are important and eternal and they're unseen and they're more important than the comfort of me eating in a specific time in a specific way. And then they put on sackcloth. I've never tried it on, but I'm imagining it's like super uncomfortable. Again, they're saying, hey, our comforts, they're here. Your desires are here. In so many ways, this kind of repentance that we see demonstrated there is so much needed both in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in this city, for us to say, hey, there's something greater than us being comfortable. There's a sacrifice that is greater than us being comfortable. Last thing, they're in ashes. They're, they're, anytime somebody had ash on their face, it was a sign of their station that they were lowly. They were humbling themselves. They're saying, look, I'm more interested in your approval, God, than the station that I'm in, my career, the praises of men, anything that I might, the accolades that I might get from others, I'm more interested in you and humbling myself before you. So appetites, comforts, power, approval, all of these things are being surrendered in this moment when the king says, we're calling a fast and nobody eats. Their belief didn't just lead to cognitive assent. They responded with physical things, with their appetite, with their comforts. In all of these ways, they said, Lord, what you have for us, the potential that you might be merciful to us is more valuable to us than all of the things that we've, that we've accumulated with our power, wealth, and control. Their true belief led to self-denial. 
They exchanged their appetites for food for an appetite for God. They exchanged their desire for comforts for a desire to be comforted by God alone. They exchanged their desire for station, power, approval for a desire for God's ultimate approval. That great exchange is what salvation looks like. That's what it looks like. For us to come to terms with the holy, righteous creator and say, okay, all the things that I was seeking after, those things are more important with you. It's more important. That's what salvation looks like for every believer. It's not just to believe, but our lives respond to that belief and that reality in this case led literally to the mercy of the judge of mankind. There's a question that hangs over this great revival that happens in the city. You guys see it? Verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent from this fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that there's a coming judgment for everyone in this room. And all that you have in response to that judgment is a question. Who knows? Listen, the majority of the world lives with that kind of question. They think, who knows? Maybe God will be merciful to me. I can only imagine. And for us who know our King and Creator, that question of who knows, we say, we know. We know. Because the movement of God towards this city and towards this group of people was His compassion. Jonah knew it. They didn't know it. Look at verse 10. What did they do? came from a genuine place of turning They turned away from the evil. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here's my last observation for you guys before we conclude. It's this, that God shows mercy. (laughs) Amen. Amen. (laughs) Everyone who truly believes knows this reality for themselves. It's not just I believe and hope and maybe who knows, maybe there'll, be, maybe there'll be some escape from God's judgment. No, we've come to this point where we're saying, that's ours in Christ Jesus. God has been merciful to me. He shows mercy. He's a God who loves to relent from disaster. In fact, in Jeremiah uh, uh, chapter 18, it says it like this. If at any time, this is God's words, I declare coming concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. Here's the good news for all of us who've turned our hearts to him. He's slow to anger. He's quick with mercy. He's quick to relent from disaster. And he saw not, uh, he didn't see just the external things. He saw the sincerity of their hearts. We have a good God who does hate evil, who would not be unjust to punish that evil, but we also have a God who loves to show mercy. He loves to exalt the humble. He'll bring down the haughty and the proud, but he's going to exalt those who have ash on their faces spiritually when they come before him and cry out for his mercy. So that is the good news of the gospel. God saw their turning and he didn't just see their failures. He saw the sincerity of their repentance and he delighted to give them mercy And then it goes on in chapter four to describe this way that God behaved. Now, Jonah knew that he was going to act this way and he gets very angry about it. And we're going to deal with that next week. But he describes how God acted in summary like this. Jonah chapter four, verse two, it'll be on the screen. He prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew 
that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He describes the reality that they were hoping for. They're hoping maybe, maybe God will relent. And Jonah's like, I know he's going to do it. He's going to do it. I can't stand it, but he's going to do it. Look at how he describes God in that verse. He's a gracious God. He loves to give grace. (laughs) In other words, he loves to give people good things they didn't deserve or earn. He loves to do that. He delights to do that. He loves to redeem what only he can redeem. He loves to take stories and intervene where only he could be responsible for the result. He loves to take a message that's five five words long going, you guys are doomed, (laughs) and turn it into a revival. He loves to do that. He loves to be merciful. Look at the next part. He loves to give mercy. He loves to withhold bad things that people really do deserve. He loves to withhold consequences that we've completely earned. He loves to do that. He's merciful. He loves to show compassion. He's slow to anger. He loves to demonstrate his patience with those who sincerely believe his words. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's got plenty to spare. It means that he's, he's not going to run out any day soon. He's not like running short in his bank for you of abounding love. He's got plenty. It's abounding. There's no lack. There's no lack in his reserve of steadfast love. He loves to be steady and steadfast, always loving. And he loves to relent from disaster. Jonah don't love it, but God shows it off. He loves to relent from disaster. Some of us know that story all too well. We saw the edge of our ruin and saw that only God could pull us back from it, and he did. We saw the conclusion of where we could be outside of Christ. And some of you, maybe it's been a long time since you imagined where you would be if God hadn't plucked you up and said, you're mine. But those that are close to the edge know what it's like (laughs) that he relents from disaster. So amazing news, guys. If you know the story of Jonah and his rebellion all too well, that's not the end of the story. God recommissions him. He shows him mercy so that he could show others mercy. Like Paul says in 1 Timothy, you've shown off your perfect patience so that I could be a testimony of those who would come to believe for ages to come. So he loves to demonstrate it to people who believe. He loves it. He responds to their repentance with compassion. Amazing. Psalm 103, we just read this earlier. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It's not the quality of even our repentance. Some of you are like, well, I'm crying out to God, asking him to help me. Look, even your your cries out for mercy are probably tainted with your sin. But God sees our frame. He knows that we're but dust. And he remembers it and shows compassion on us. So how are we going to move forward? I just want to conclude with this. God loves to show mercy. There's two people, two kinds of people in this story. There's religious people and there's outright rebellious. Both of them running from God. <laughs> Look, if, you, if you're like Jonah... And it feels like you've been decommissioned. You've been sidelined because of your own path you've been trying to take or try to create on your own. You feel like you're wondering, what is the purpose? 
I think for some people in this room today, God's word is coming once again saying, hey, I have a great purpose for you. It may not be what you want, but it's what I have for you. And I'm inviting you to be part of something that you would not create on your own. It's a story that's bigger you, and it's not about you. It's about my excellencies, and it's about who I am. He's inviting religious and rebellious people into his purpose. There's some of you who need to be recommissioned. You feel like you've been decommissioned? You need to be recommissioned by God's mercy to see he has greater purposes than you could imagine. The story's not over. It's not, it's not ended. The reason that he saved you is so that he might declare his excellencies through you so that others might see, oh yeah, he must be good. He saved the likes of you. <laughs> he must be great. I love this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10, it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So in other words, he plucked you out of darkness. gave you his incredible light so that other people could see how excellent he is. Not so that they would look at you and say, you're doing great. What a good Christian. He wants to see his excellence displayed in your life so that others could witness it. Say, wow, God's amazing. And those that are far from him, if you're rebellious today, maybe you have the same question that the Ninevites had. You walked into the room thinking, who knows? Maybe God could save me. (laughs) It's been a mess up to this point. If that's you, I got really good news. He loves to do it. He loves to do it. He loves to demonstrate his kindness through the likes of people like you and me. So how do you get that surety of salvation and forgiveness? Look, if it were up to us, who could stand? Psalm 130 says this, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? There, I mean, the question that the Ninevites have, it's, it's an accurate one. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will relent. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so for those that are far from Christ today, here's the hope that we have in the gospel, that with Christ there is forgiveness. And the only way that it comes, the only way that it comes is through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice in your place for your sins. Maybe if you're coming with that question, thinking maybe he'll relent, the the exclamation point to that question is the cross of Jesus Christ. That he gladly chose, not my will, but yours be done. When he walked to the cross and he took on the sins of many so that we might be free. So that God could demonstrate his righteousness through everyone who believes. And so for you in the room today that are just new and and maybe you want to, to answer that question. True belief looks just like the Ninevites. It looks like life change. You give up your evil and you say, I want to follow him. And look, you're not going to be perfect tomorrow everybody's in this trudge of faith saying, Lord, forgive me again. Lord, forgive me again. I want to walk with you. And so wherever you're at in the journey, whether you're religious or rebellious, the the good news of the gospel is that God loves to show off his mercy through the likes of me and you. And so I would love to pray that God would bring about faith and repentance for those that are far from him and those who think they're far from him. (laughs) Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for the demonstration of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Thank you for suffering in our place for our sins. For those that feel unworthy, unloved, rebellious still, even in this space, I pray that your word would come and pursue them just as you did with Jonah, that it would come to them, that you would bring life and power to these meager words and that you'd use them to transform hearts. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.